0: For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Those of you who have, uh, have children have, uh, have no doubt had a moment where your children have defeated you, <laughs> where, uh, at least, maybe more than one, um, where where something that you've taught them or something that you say to them uh, comes back to bite you uh, as a lesson that they come then to teach you. So uh, I had such a moment uh, this morning. Uh, It centers around teeth brushing. Uh, we uh, we were very diligent about teeth brushing in our house, and uh, as Lila could tell you, and um, and I and I said to Shmaya this morning, "Oh, we need to do a better job brushing your teeth. Your teeth are looking kind of yellow, and not I don't know." Ten minutes later, you know, we went off and did other things. Whatever. <laughs> Ten minutes later, he comes up to me, he looks at me, and as a smile, I says, Ah, but your teeth are looking yellow. <laughs> so I realized, uh, having not brushed my teeth yet uh, that in the morning, uh, that uh, my child had defeated me. Uh, that idea of, uh, of, of uh, being defeated by one's children features prominently in, into one of my favorite stories in all of the Talmud. My guess is some of you have heard this story before. Uh, it's, uh, called the story of the Tanur Shel Achnai, uh, the oven of Achnai, Achnai's oven. Um, uh. Scholars debate why the oven was called the oven of Achnai. was uh, maybe a guy named Achnai uh, was known for making this kind of oven. You know, sort of like you know whirlpool dishwasher, right? Akhnai oven. In any event, it was uh, the kind of oven. It was is sort of immaterial uh, to the discussion. It's sort of the setting of the of the conversation. It was an oven that was made with like coils, coils of uh, of of, of, of uh, clay or material that, that made the oven uh, and. Uh, the ovens back then were more like kilns more than the kind of ovens we have this is a, an oven that was made out of coils and uh, the sages were debating uh, whether such an oven was uh, susceptible to impurity in other words whether it could become impure uh, and thereby uh, uh, not be uh, usable uh, in uh, for, for uh, 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 ritual functions and Virtually all of the sages said that it was susceptible to impurity. And one sage stood opposite them, Rabbi Eliezer, who said that the oven was not susceptible to impurity. And they debated long and hard about whether or not this oven was susceptible to impurity with all of the sages on one side and Rabbi Eliezer on the other side. Finally, Rabbi Eliezer gets frustrated by the back-and-forth, give-and-take. He's not winning the rational argument. He's not winning the logical argument, the halakhic argument. So he says, uh, if, uh, if I am right, then may proof come from the carob tree outside. There's a carob tree right outside the study hall, and... As Rabbi Eliezer says, let the proof come from the carob tree. The carob tree leaps out of the ground and moves across the field and plants itself on the other side of the field, implying that, uh, that uh, 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 the, there is divine force behind Rabbi Eliezer's position, so much so that supernatural things are happening to prove his point. The sages are unmoved by this argument, and they say... Proof cannot be derived from carob trees. (laughs) So says, okay, well, let me think about this. I know, if I am right, let the river prove it. And there's a river, a little creek running alongside the study hall, and the river stops running and begins running backwards. The sages are unconvinced by this argument, too. And they say to him, proofs cannot be offered from rivers. So Rabbi Eliezer says, okay, if I am right, let the walls of the study house prove it. If I am right, let the walls of the study house prove it. And so the walls of the study house begin to collapse. Sensing imminent danger, another sage, a great sage, someone of equal prominence to Rabbi Eliezer, uh, this is, uh, is uh, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Joshua, uh, stands up and commands the walls not to fall down. And at the time of the writing of the story, the walls of the study house were reported to have remained standing at a slant from that point on in deference both to Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Eliezer commanding them to fall down, Rabbi Joshua commanding them to rise up, but the walls don't fall down. And then the sages say, proof cannot be derived from the walls of the study house. You can't prove your argument that way. You have to prove your argument through rational, logical, halakhic reasoning, textual proof, analysis, interpretation, but not magic. Not the miraculous. So, Rabbi Eliezer thinks about it, strokes his beard. Says, well, there's really only one argument I have left. Really only one way I can win this. is by summoning God, God's self, to tell the rest of the sages that I am right. And so, He says, if I am right, let a divine voice prove it. And Abbat Kol, God's voice, comes forth from the heavens and says, the law is in accordance with Rabbi Eliezer. The law is always in accordance with Rabbi Eliezer. The law this time is definitely in accordance with Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Ezra mean, yes, sits back in his chair crosses his arms puts his arms behind his head really proud of himself that he has called forth the divine voice to prove his argument for him but Rabbi Joshua stands up and says Lo bashamayim he it is not in heaven an argument, a halakhic argument can't be determined by recourse to divine voices. When the sages are debating a matter of biblical law, a matter of Torah interpretation, even God's self cannot intervene into the argument and settle the dispute. The dispute has to be settled among the sages themselves. God has no jurisdiction over an argument Between the sages. Later on, somebody asked Elijah the prophet, who, as we know, resides in heaven, what God said or did at that moment when Rabbi Joshua said, Loba Shemaimhi, that it's not in heaven. And Elijah said that God laughed and said, Nitroni Banai banai. My children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. After all, that line, Loba Shemayim, he is in the Torah itself. Now it comes in a passage in Deuteronomy that says that the Torah is not so hard to understand, that it's off in the heavens, and that the only people who are deep mystics, bodhisattvas, only they can understand Torah, that real, live human beings, you and I, we can understand Torah. That's where the line comes from in Deuteronomy, but the sages use the line to say that once God has given the Torah to human beings, the Torah no longer belongs to God. It belongs to us. And as something that belongs to us, it's up to us to interpret it. It's up to us to apply it, to understand it, to make sure that it continues to be relevant to our times and address our needs and our concerns. There's a wonderful midrash that uh, talks about the rabbinic act of midrash, the act of biblical interpretation analysis. And it says that there was once a flesh and blood king who called forth two servants and gave them all bundles of flax. One servant was so overwhelmed that the king would entrust that servant with his store of flax that he kept it in a protected closet and preserved it and didn't touch it. The other servant saw this bundle of flax that the king gave him as this extraordinary raw material that he'd been given. And so the king gave him this bundle of flax, and he spun it into linen, and he made incredible, gorgeous garments out of this flax. And after uh, some time, the king calls the servants back and says, can I have my flax back, please? And so the first servant is very proud of himself that he kept the flax exactly as the king intended and brings it back to him. The other servant brings back all these gorgeous clothes that he made, brings it to the king. And the king embraces the second servant and says, you have done what I had hoped. You had taken the raw material that I gave to you and you have made of it into something useful and something beautiful, something that can serve the needs of human beings, something that can keep people warm and keep people beautiful. You are my greatest servant. The rabbis take that midrash, that parable, as an example of what God hopes that we do with Torah. And what I think the holiday of Shavuot is offering for us in its celebration of revelation is that, as I mentioned before, when we were talking about the book of Ezekiel and why it's chosen as the Haftorah for this morning, the rabbinic tradition does not see the revelation at Sinai as a one-time event. The rabbinic tradition sees the giving of Torah as an ongoing process. A process begun by God, but continued through human beings, through our searching and questioning and striving to understand and build relationship with God, and simultaneously our searching and striving and seeking to understand and build relationship with Torah, and bring Torah into conversation with our real lived experience and the deepest and best of our human understanding. The process of receiving Torah is not just standing at the foot of the mountain, opening up our hands and holding it. It's also taking that raw material from heaven, no longer being in heaven, putting it into our hands and making of it something beautiful and something useful for us right here, right now, and for our children that they can take with them and build for themselves. It's perhaps why, as our ancient tradition teaches, uh, how our ancestors would have celebrated Shavuot with a mincha chadasha, with a new kind of grain offering. The only holiday that's celebrated with a mincha chadasha, with with an offering of the new. And why we celebrate with loaves of bread, unique to all the other holidays of the kind of offerings we bring. Why loaves of bread? Because loaves of bread take the raw material that is present in the earth. We spin it and we make it, we knead it into something that is sustaining and something useful for us. And so Shavuot, the way the biblical tradition has us celebrate it is with a new offering. An offering of the new because we're supposed to take Torah and make of it something new. And we celebrate with bread because we're supposed to take of the Torah this raw material the wheat, the flour and make of it something even more extraordinary than it was when we first received it. Our challenge as we accept Torah this Shavuot is not just can we take hold of it but how can we really take ownership of it? How can we make of it something true, beautiful, and relevant for us right now, for this time, for our time, and ensure that it is something living and breathing and valuable and useful for our children to take hold of so that they can make of it something beautiful in their time?